As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. Alone Together, Why the Loss of Community is Breaking the West. A Culture Project Restore Night Talk by Brendan Malone. Can everyone hear me all right? Good stuff. Now, as you can tell, uh, I, uh, I speak a different brand of the Queen's English. So uh, I come from uh, a land down under. Uh, no, I come from New Zealand. Uh, so for those of you who are not familiar with New Zealand, uh, I come from a small town called Rangiora, which is just north of Christchurch. There's a map for you, so if you're visiting, there it is. Um, I live there with my wife and our five children. Uh, Katie and I, we've been married for uh, almost 15 years now. We have five children, as I said. We're doing our bit to keep the population of Rangiora thriving. Um, this is our eldest daughter, Lucy. She's 11. This is Maddie and Evie, our twin daughters, and uh, they are nine, although recently they informed me they're actually 18. So this is two of them. So I have to trust them because my maths is not as good as theirs, clearly. Um, and this is uh, my son, Nathaniel. Uh, He's about to turn six in another month or so. Uh, We unleashed him on the local Catholic primary school earlier this year. And this is our youngest daughter, Eleanor Teresa Benedicta. And uh, she is, yeah, take that in. She looks after, takes after a month, thank goodness for her. And um, uh, she turned three today, actually. Uh, So, happy birthday, Eleanor. Um, Daddy's coming home. Okay, so, later. Um, And I also have a contractual obligation to my children, uh, that wherever I go, I have to show a photograph of our cat, Ignatius. So this is our cat, Ignatius. So, you know, I've fulfilled my contractual obligations now. Um, the reason I'm here is um, I'm actually here doing some other speaking work, and this tonight just got tacked on at the last minute, as you heard. Your other guest speaker fell through. So um, uh, apparently uh, uh, Dory uh, uh, rang up the, uh, the most intelligent speaker that she could find, and the most intelligent speaker that she could find was unavailable. Uh, so she then uh, rang up the funniest speaker that she knew, uh, also unavailable. Um, then she rang up the, uh, the best-looking speaker that she could find, and uh, also unavailable. Um, and then she rang me, and I said, look, Dora, you've rang me three times already. I'll say yes this time. So, okay, so... Um, Hashtag dad jokes. Okay, so I tell a lot of those. Um, If you want to find out more about what I do, I have a YouTube channel. It's not huge. I have just over 17,000 subscribers, which is not big in YouTube terms, but it's a community that I like to connect with on a daily basis, Monday to Friday. You can find that at Watch LFM. Uh, Left Foot Media is the name of my channel. Um, And you can find out more about me at lifenet.co.nz. I've been speaking full-time now for almost 15 years uh, in New Zealand and Australia on pro-life marriage and family issues. Um, And, uh, yeah, this is what I do full-time. So I'm here actually at the moment doing some work for the Archdiocese and Education Office. Tomorrow I'm going to be speaking at a World Youth Day anniversary event to a whole lot of high school students and then on Wednesday night at New Annual Mass for Life to another group of students there as well. Uh, and on Saturday, of course, as has already been mentioned, the Life Choice uh, Training Day. Uh, tonight's presentation, though, let's get into it. Uh, the, the, basically, the, the gist of tonight's presentation is why the need for community, uh, in, in, in particular Catholic community, is more pressing than it's ever been before. 
and and I've titled this this particular presentation has has gone through various iterations and, and name changes, but uh, I settled on alone together. Uh, why the loss of community is breaking the West, and I guess I, I was talking to some people on the way in here today about the breakdown of community and how bad it has become. And it's getting to the point now where we, I, I, I don't know if this is the same in Australia, but from what I understand, it is very similar. We are having children as young as 11 and 12 years of age attempting to take their own lives in my country. And these are not children from broken, dysfunctional homes. These are children who live in well-adjusted middle-class families. Something is going wrong in your society when that is happening. Uh, last year, our, well, our recently our suicide uh, statistics came out in New Zealand. They came out last week, and uh, it's the highest we've ever had in our country, in our history. Uh, but last year, they identified a new black spot. In New Zealand, we've always known that, uh, and this is true around the rest of the world as well, that male suicides outnumber female ones, uh, basically of, of an average of about three to one. And uh, they've always known that the age of 40 to 45 is a suicide black spot. For, it's a real danger spot for men. It's the midlife crisis. Uh, I'm 42, so I understand what that's like. You wake up one day and you realise that the grave is a lot closer than your birth was. And you start to wonder about the meaning of life and what you've contributed and stuff like that. So I understand why that's a black spot. But last year, they identified a new black spot for males for suicide in New Zealand. And it's ages 20 to 24. That should not be a suicide danger spot at all. I remember being 20 to 24, and I thought I was bulletproof. I thought I was 10 foot tall. Uh, too much so, right? And that's, that's what happens. That's what youth is supposed to be like. And that period of your life, for those who might be here tonight who are living in that age zone, that's what your life should be like. And you need the wisdom of older men, older than me and wiser than myself, but you need the wisdom of older men to sort of temper that excess. It should not be a suicide hotspot. Something is going wrong in our culture when it is. So what has gone wrong? Well, I think, uh, as I said, we are living uh, in societies, and I use the word society, quote unquote, where we are living alone together. We are living in silos. We are not forming meaningful community, and this is a problem. Why is this an issue? Well, <clears throat> first of all, let's have a quick look at the human person and what they're made for. Let's go all the way back to Aristotle. Aristotle, uh, in his Ethics of Friendship, identified the fact that there's only ever three ways that human beings can ever relate to each other, three types of relationships that can be formed. The first and the lowest form of relationship we can form is what he called a friendship of utility. And this is a relationship that only exists between two people because there is some utility between the two of them. So what was your name? Jacob, pleased to meet you, Jacob. I'm going to embarrass you. Apologies for that. So let's say Jacob's a builder. He likes building houses, really enjoys it. I sell building products. Uh, he makes money by selling houses. I make money by selling building products to people who build houses. We have a relationship built on that utility that exists between us, the money and the goods that change hands between us. Now let's say I move into a different industry uh, a couple of months down the track and I start selling beauty products. Well, that's no good. You can't build houses with beauty products, so our relationship comes to an end because it was built on nothing more than the utility that existed between us. The next level of friendship is what Aristotle called a friendship of pleasure or a pleasurable friendship. 
And this is a bit different from a friendship of utility. This is a relationship between two people where they actually enjoy each other's company. It's not just about utility, something they're getting out of it, but it's the, 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 the pleasure they take, the genuine joy they, they take from spending time together and doing things in life together. But Aristotle said that's not the highest form of friendship. He said the third and the most important and the highest form of relationship that you can ever share with another human person is what he called a friendship of virtue or, or a virtuous friendship. And in a friendship of virtue, now things are completely different. It's no longer about the utility, what I get out of it. It's no longer about the, the pleasure that I take from being with this person. In a friendship of virtue, my focus is now on seeking the good of that other person. It's about self-giving. And in self-giving, not only do they benefit as a person, but so do I. I find my flourishing by giving myself Away. That's how I find the fullest meaning. And Aristotle says this is how human relationships find their pinnacle. This is where they find their pinnacle, in this act of self-sacrificial love, this, this self-giving friendship. But it's not just Aristotle saying this. It's also the church. Christianity has been saying this from the very beginning. You're probably all familiar with this statement, that we are made in the image and likeness of God. What does this mean? Well, I'm glad you asked because we're going to have a look at that now. Um, let's start with one of the probably one of the most common phrases that you've heard uh, to do with Christianity, and certainly if you've ever attended an RE class or sung a Christian hymn or prayed a Christian prayer, you've ho- probably heard the statement "God is love." In fact, this is one of the safest answers you can give if you fall asleep in a theology class and wake up and don't know what's being discussed. The other one is Jesus. Who's your hero? Jesus is my hero, right? It's one of the safest things you can say. Um, But what does this mean? Because this is a really profound statement. This statement, God is love, just rolls off the tongue. We say it. We sing it all the time. But do we ever stop to think about how profound this statement actually is? It would be amazing to say that God loves us, which he obviously does. And that is a profound statement, that God would love his creation. Uh, That's absolutely profound. But to say God is love itself, how can God be love? Well, because our God is not a solitary being. Our God is a trinity. The Father engaged in an eternal act of self-giving love. And for love to be love, it has to be fully received and fully returned. It has to be reciprocated in equal measure as it is received. The only person capable of receiving the fullness of the Father's love and returning it in equal measure is the Son, is Jesus. And the love between the Father and the Son, as St. Augustine would tell us, is so profound, we give it a name, we call it the Holy Spirit. And this is who God is. So what this means is before any of creation even existed, before the cosmos, before any created thing was actually created and brought into existence, there was family, there was community, there was love, there was self-giving, preeminent above all else. And we are made in the image and likeness of that community of self-giving love. So if we are made in the image and likeness of God and God is a community of self-giving love, then what are we made for? We are made for community. We are made for self-giving. We are made for self-giving love. That's how we flourish. That's how we find ourselves. But it's not just Aristotle and it's not just the church telling us this. It's also social science is now confirming this. And we've known things about this for a very long time. We've known, for example, that the old model of 
of the way in which we used to treat prisoners is not a good model. The idea of putting them in solitary confinement. So once upon a time, we used to build prisons with an individual cell for each prisoner. And the architecture of the cell was designed so that their eyes would be drawn upwards. Sometimes they'd have a little hole in the roof to look to heaven or maybe a little window at the top, obviously high enough and small enough so they couldn't escape. And then they were supposed to sit there, contemplate their sins, focus on God and put themselves right with God. That's, that was the thinking around a lot of prison architecture a couple hundred years ago. Well, we know now that that, is, uh, that does terrible things to a person to put them in that sort of solitary confinement. A person who is deprived of community and that basic ability to commune with another does not thrive. In fact, really bad things can happen to a person in that situation. They can even begin to doubt the basic fundamentals of who they are and their own experiences as a person. There's a, a particular syndrome that some people can get in these situations called memory distrust syndrome, where a person no longer even believes that their own memories of things that are actually true and have happened are actually true. They become that disconnected from themselves simply by being deprived community. We know that people find the most meaning and flourishing in life when they do things that are meaningful. They don't find it by just seeking pleasure. They don't find it by having the most lucrative, most prestigious job in the world. They find it when they have a career that gives a sense of meaning and purpose. And that meaning and purpose is found by giving of themselves to something greater than they are. So what we've got is a situation where Aristotle, Christianity and social science say the exact same thing about human flourishing. And when you've got three diverse sources, a pagan philosopher, Christianity and modern social science who are all saying the same things, I think it's worth taking note. It's worth stopping and saying, hey, maybe there is a profoundly important natural law truth here. There is a profoundly important truth that is universally true to everybody that we need to actually learn from and understand here. And basically what Aristotle, Christianity and social science are all telling us is that our flourishing is found in community. It's about people journeying with each other and seeking the good of each other. And through that, we form a meaningful communion and a shared common interest in the well-being of each other. That's what community is. It's not just a group of people who all happen to be geographically located in the same place at any given moment. That is not what a community is. A community is built on self-giving. It is built on a shared common interest in the other. Without that, you just have people who are grouped together, which is why even the word society, I think, is used very loosely now. That's why I put quote-unquote around it at the beginning. Because often our societies are just people who happen to be geographically grouped together. So what has gone wrong in the West? Why is it that in the West so many people so often report feeling disconnected, alone, isolated? What has gone on? What has gone wrong? Well, first of all, the reason people feel disconnected and isolated is because they are disconnected and isolated. Often what we do is we want to sort of reduce this to nothing more than a feeling. If we can just, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, if we can just help people deal with their feeling of isolation and disconnectedness, then they'll come right and everything will be right for them. But it's more than a feeling. There's a reason why people feel that way. It's because that feeling is a reflection of a reality that is being lived. They are disconnected and isolated. And it's important to get to the bottom of why this is happening. So here's a couple of things that I, I think 
have brought us or lead us into this situation. First of all, we now live in a culture of self-gratification, which is the exact opposite of self-giving, which is what we are made for, which is what we are called to. We now live in a culture that is focused on seeking pleasure. We don't have a shared common interest in self-regulation through virtue anymore. Personal happiness is now king. I don't, remember, I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago on social media, there was the was it 100 days of happiness, that, you know, do something every day that makes you happy. It was all about your happiness. And that's a reflection of something and an idea and ideology that's very common in our culture, that your life should be about your personal happiness. But here's the thing. You cannot do community with pleasure as the end goal. You can't do community that way. You can't do anything meaningful in life that way either. I can't be a good husband and father if pleasure is my primary goal because, quite frankly, there are times when being a husband and a father is the least pleasurable thing in the world to do. At 2 a.m., when my child is awake screaming out, Daddy, 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 and I'm lying there, still as I can, hoping my wife thinks I'm asleep, that is a, you know, that's the moment where I have to actually give of myself and, and I struggle in that moment to get out of bed and stumble like a, a, a zombified zombie down the hallway to my child to find out what's going on. The fact that you have to work and worry and, and, and suffer to give of yourself to your children, it is a, it's a beautiful cross, but it is still a cross. And there's great reward in it. I take great delight in it, but it is also something that requires and demands a lot of my wife and I. And if you are seeking pleasure as your primary goal, you're going to be a terrible parent. If you're seeking pleasure as your primary goal, you're going to be a terrible husband or wife if that's your primary goal of marriage. You just are. Because it's tough. There are some days it really sucks. And that's okay. That's, it's the way it's supposed to be. It's actually a good thing. It draws you out of yourself. It draws you closer to your spouse and closer to your children. I remember my wife and I, when we got back from our honeymoon, and I think it was the day after we got back, we had our first big argument and it was huge, this huge bust up over whether the rice should go in the top cupboard above the sink or the bottom cupboard below the sink. Now, I'm a, I'm a more wiser, seasoned husband now, and I just don't even go into the kitchen and make those kind of suggestions anymore because I just know that's not a prudent thing to do. It's so funny, though. Here we were, two people who were so uh, insistent that we had to have the right of way and the beauty of marriage is that it really knocks that off you, but you've got to be willing to give yourself to that. I remember my wife came back to me afterwards and she said, oh, have we made a terrible mistake getting married and you know, what have we done? And I said, well, to be honest, honey, it's too late now. So, <laughs> so I said, we're just going to have to figure it out. And I said, no, we didn't make a mistake. I said, I was just being pig-headed and I wanted what I wanted. And you are also equally stubborn and that's a good thing because I am very stubborn and I need a stubborn woman who is going to knock the rough edges off me, right? And you need a stubborn man who's going to knock the rough edges off you. And I promise I will never go in the kitchen ever again. And so um, that's how that came to, uh, you know, and basically incrementally I've been moving further and further out towards the garage with each passing year, basically the sort of the border from where I am, uh, what I'm allowed to advise on and what I'm not allowed to advise on. But you can't do community with pleasure as the end goal because community requires self-giving and suffering and difficulty. And you have to put up with annoying people in a community. You actually have to love them despite their, their, their differences, despite the frustrating things about them. Community is not easy, right? It takes a level of commitment that pleasure will get in the way of. 
Uh, if you haven't read it, I'd highly recommend that everyone at least once in their, in their life reads Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. Very, very important book. And, and, and probably one of the best self-help books ever written. And it's written by a guy who spent time in five different Nazi concentration camps as a Jewish prisoner. So you know when he talks about meaning and suffering and finding your meaning and purpose in life, he knows what he's talking about because he's lived it. But Viktor Frankl in his book talks about the fact that you cannot, cannot find meaning in life if you focus on what is known as the will to pleasure, which is very much part of Freud's approach to human psychology and dealing with neuroses, the search for pleasure. And he said you won't find meaning in life if you make the will to power your primary goal. What you need to have is what he called a will to meaning. And part of a will to meaning is self-giving and a willingness to actually suffer. Number two, the reason why we find ourselves isolated is because of modern market forces. Uh, whether we like it or not, we are now uh, caught up in a society where uh, consumerism and we've got an economic environment that turns us into individuals who are often consumers and all sorts of areas where we shouldn't really be consumers, and we are very much contracted to as individuals and dependent on corporations. We live in a very corporatized society. It's, it's just it's a part of life in the modern world, and it has changed the way in which communities, it's been very detrimental to local community. Now, please hear me out, I'm not a communist, and by any stretch of the imagination, and I'm not for a minute suggesting that communism is the answer, but ironically, the current approach to economics is, uh, which places the individual at the centre of a lot of things, actually ends up doing the same sort of thing. It ends up sort of expanding the role of the state because the state has to step in and fill the void that is being lost to where local community and family would once have been to aid people. But we are now more and more consumers. We go to church even. We go to mass. And what do we do on Sunday? We often go as consumers. Where's my homily? Where's my good liturgy? Where's my good music? Didn't get a good homily? This place sucks. Where can I go to get a good homily? Right? This is how a consumer approaches their experience of mass. But we are called to self-giving. And in self-giving, it's not about what I get out of it. It's about what I give. Right? We could learn something important here when it comes to market forces from the Amish. Now, I'm not saying that we should become the Amish. I believe that we're called to live countercultural lives, not anti-cultural lives. We sort of just isolate and segregate ourselves away. But one of the interesting things that a lot of people don't know about the Amish is that the Amish aren't actually Luddites. They're not opposed to technology because it's technology. They only oppose technology if it actually impinges upon community. What they believe is you are supposed to live together as community. This is why the Amish don't have insurance. It's not because they believe that modern insurance is bad. It's because they believe that if you get into trouble, you should be able to rely on your local community to assist you. So if your house burns down, it's the role of the local community to actually come to your assistance, not a corporation somewhere. And it's a fascinating point that I think is well worth taking note of. Have we, because of the way in which we have structured our societies economically, lost sight of community, and I would argue that yes, we have. We also have a loss of subsidiarity in our societies. Subsidiarity basically is that important principle that if a lower authority than your central government can do something better, they should be the ones doing it. That's where the authority should be. So, really, I, I was asked recently by someone on my YouTube channel, how much, you know, what powers do you think the government should have? 
what authority should the government have? And, and for me, it's pretty straightforward. Can the family do it better? Well, then that's where the power should lie. Can the local community do it better? That's where the power should lie. If either of those can't do it better than the central government, then the central government should be the one doing it. But we've lost subsidiarity, and we often now, because of globalisation, talk about being global citizens. But here's the problem with being a global citizen. You can't actually form community with the entire planet. You can't. You cannot form a meaningful relationship with every other person, the billions of other people on this planet. You can't. You can delude yourself into thinking that you're doing that, but you can't. Um, last year I read uh, Sebastian Junger's book. Sebastian Junger is a secular anthropologist, and he wrote a fascinating book called Tribe. And in that book he presents all the research, and he basically argues that the human person is designed to live in communities of about 60 or 70 people. And we, these communities we are supposed to journey through life and suffer with and experience the joys of life with that 60 or 70 people around us. He said, that's it. When you try and go beyond that, you actually can't form meaningful connections with people. And so that loss of subsidiarity, that loss of authority and connection in those lower levels in society where it should belong is making us less connected as societies. We have also, and I'm sure this is no secret to any of you here, we have also lost our unifying vision of reality in the West. So, in a nutshell, sorry, just chewing on that ice. Mm, delicious. Uh, the death of God has not killed God or our longing for him. And basically the very aggressive secularisation of the West has caused us to lose sight of that unifying vision, that Judeo-Christian paradigm on, upon which we based our understanding of the world. And this is a really, really big problem when you are living in a society where you still have ethical quandaries and ethical problems that need to be solved, but you don't have a shared ethical toolbox anymore. You don't have a shared ethical understanding or view of reality. And basically what we've got now is a lot of people living in their own little ideological silos. We've got a lot of relativism, right? What's true for me is true for me. What's true for you is true for you. They're just different truths. As Peter Kreeft would say, no one really wants to live in a world of moral relativism. Even the most committed moral relativist does not want to live in a world where we could all get on the Sydney motorway and decide whether we're morally okay with drinking and driving. No one really wants to live in a world where the worst we could say about Adolf Hitler and the Nazis was they just made morally different choices. Genocide was their truth, it's not mine, right? We want to recognise, and rightly so, that there's a great evil in that. But the problem is we do live in a world of relativism and we have a loss of a shared ethical language, a loss of a shared and unifying vision of reality in the West. But here's the interesting thing. We still want to trade in on the heritage that that shared identity gave us. So I, I, I watched um, Sam Harris's latest debate with Jordan Peterson and had a real chuckle as Sam Harris is talking about how toxic and poisonous and evil Christianity is. And yet he lives in a society where he's freely able to talk about how toxic and poisonous and evil Christianity is without fear of repercussion or being put in jail or executed or anything along those lines. There's a reason for that that he hasn't stopped to consider Right? He still wants to trade on that patrimony, but wants to get rid of the foundation upon which it's built. And that's not good for us. We've lost that shared unifying vision of reality. And of course, technology, in particular, social media. And there's a couple of things we need to be aware of about social media. First of all, social media comes with its own particular effects. 
The first is something called online disinhibition effect. And I should start by saying at this point here, I'm not a Luddite myself, don't panic. I'm not suggesting, I'm really not suggesting we should become Amish. I am on social media. I have, it's a tool, it can be used. But it also comes with some issues and problems we need to be aware of. So one of these is online disinhibition effect. And as the name suggests, we get on social media and our inhibitions go out the window often. And there's two reasons for this. Number one, it's because our brain tells us that no one else is watching what we're doing. So that basic shame factor. So if I was in a room full of people here, there's certain things I wouldn't say or do. But if I'm on my own, I think no one's watching. Often I'll go further than I should. The other way in which online disinhibition effect works is that basically I lose sight of empathy. Because in my brain, what I'm seeing is pixels on a screen. I'm not recognising there's a real person on the end of this or that there's a real person or real people that I'm actually talking about. And we tend to depersonalise and objectify people more than ever before when we're online. Because we don't hear their voice, we don't see their face. So if Rebecca and I are having a conversation about some serious political issue and I make a point where we disagree strongly and she all of a sudden sort of starts to get tears in her eyes, I know maybe I've gone a little bit too far. My empathy can, mechanisms tell me, yeah, maybe you've taken it too far, Brendan, you need to apologise. Right? If she says something and I lie on the floor in the fetal position sucking my thumb, then she knows that she's really gone too far, right? You don't see that, you don't hear that, you don't get that sense online. And so we just keep going and going and going. The other thing is that we've got a lot of clicktivism, slacktivism, or sometimes it's called virtue signalling, where people get online and talk about how virtuous they are and all the problems in the world that they would like to see you know, John Lennon, if we all just sung John Lennon's Imagine a few more times, maybe the world will come right, you know, and imagine there's no guns, imagine there's no bombs, imagine the song wasn't here, um, you know, um, and, and basically we, we talk about all the evils in the world and what we'd like to see resolved, but we don't really do a lot of living out that virtue in the real world, we're very good at talking about it, and that's become a big issue, we're not as engaged anymore. The other thing is that often we're going from one of only two states in life, busy and distracted, and social media is the thing that distracts us. It's hard to form a meaningful interior life. It's hard to philosophise about the world and explore the big questions and to think deeply if you don't actually allow yourself space for that to happen, if you don't actually allow yourself an interior life where there is no distraction. So how often are we stuck, and I know this is a big trap for me, running between busyness and distraction, busyness and distraction. And when we live in a constant state like that, busyness and distraction, then we are very, we're, we're stuck in a really dangerous place. We are very, very prone to being captured by superficial things because we're not thinking and living particularly deeply. The other thing about social media, of course, is the fact that uh, thanks to the way in which social media algorithms work, we are being led further and further down, more and more paranoid, it seems, of late uh, ideological rabbit holes. Your clicking, viewing, reading habits are watched. And the tech companies, what they do is they go, okay, so Rebecca likes this type of content. Let's give her more and more and more of this type of content. She watches videos about how the cat people really control the government and how there's a secret conspiracy between the lizards and Alex Jones and Russia. She loves this stuff, okay? Then we need to give her more and more of these kind of videos because that's what she enjoys. And Rebecca goes further and further down this paranoid ideological rabbit hole, this echo chamber. And she becomes more and more segregated from, from the real world. Her focus becomes very narrow. Her field of inquiry becomes very narrow. This is one of the reasons why I try and read for an hour a day every day. 
I've been a bit slack lately, but I try and read for an hour a day. And if you do that, you can get through a book every fortnight just by doing that. It's been such a rich and rewarding thing to do. And one of the big things that I find it helps you with is it broadens your field of inquiry. And you begin to get a lot more wisdom in your life, which social media doesn't tend to give us. Social media can give us plenty of great platitudes. You know, those posters, you know, achieve your dreams. You know, don't let anyone stand in your way. Picture of Adolf Hitler on it. You know? <laughs> don't let anyone say no. <laughs> Nine. Okay, so, um, and, 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 but, but to get wisdom, which is knowing important things about important things, you need to look beyond. You need to have a bigger field of inquiry. And lastly, I think this is my last point, really, is that we are stuck in a bit of a political false dichotomy. We are effectively stuck between liberal progressivism at the moment and liberal conservatism. And what they both get wrong is they put the individual at the centre. And that's a problem. Because you can't have meaningful community if the individual is at the centre of everything. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that there aren't critiques to be made and that, uh, that either side has, has necessarily got it all right or all wrong. But the point is that the way in which we are now stuck between these two positions is not actually helping us or moving us forward. Their shared problem, as I said, is the individualism and the destruction of community that they result in. So even liberal progressivism, uh, liberal conservatism, which would very often, for example, promote a small government and a small state, is also often invested in this idea of individual choice and freedom to the point that the individual is now separated from local community and even at times from their own family. Now the problem is, in order to fill the void that is left when they have no connection with their local community, what do you need? You need a much bigger state that can step in. Effectively, they do the same thing as people on the other side who want to make the state into our mother, which is something that the state should not be either. So, what do we do? Well, I'm glad you asked. <clears throat> Here's some things that we can do to reclaim community, and because this is where the rubber hits the road. Uh, I don't like just turning up and pointing out problems. I like to offer what I think are potential solutions. And I think that's how the only way can, we can begin to get forward momentum. Any one of us can stand there screaming at the darkness, but as the old Chinese proverb goes, it is better to light a candle than to simply scream at the darkness. Right? So what can we do to actually light a candle? How do we build meaningful community, and in this case meaningful Catholic community? Well, first of all, community must not be a buzzword. Are we actually living the kind of culture that we want to be living in. I'm sure if I sat down with you all and said, what do you think you know, an ideal Australian society would look like, you'd probably have some good ideas to share about that. If I said to you, what are the things you don't want in your ideal Australian society, you'd probably enunciate clearly some of those things as well. But the, que the key question is, are you actually living those things in your own life? Are you actually living the kind of culture that you want to be living in? Does your actual, your personal life, your home life, your work life, your entertainment life, does it look like the kind of culture that you want to be living in? Community can't just be a buzzword. It's such a buzzword today in a lot of Catholic parishes. You know, it's the, 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 the parish community of St. John's. But what do you mean by that? I don't know, but it's such a lovely sounding thing to say, isn't it? The community of St. John's. Where things happen. What things? Where's the community? Right? Seriously. And it's in my parish all the time, it drives me back with this pastoral plan. 
Uh, one of the sins of the church today is everyone's got to have a document for everything they do, you know? Father's wiping his nose. Where's the document for that? You know, like, is it right? You know, is it wrong? So, um, well, that was a bit snide, wasn't it? Sorry. Um, but the, the, you know, it's true. Um, but the point is that, that community has become one of those buzzwords, and it's all through pastoral plans, and we've got a strong parish communities. What do you mean by community? Do you really mean a shared investment in the lives of other people? Because often I go, and look at my own parish, and we're all guilty of doing this. I'm part of my parish, so it's on me as well. You know, we talk about community, but then we get in there, get our Eucharist, say hi, quick, let's go. Kids, in the car, let's get out of here, right? There's no genuine connection beyond that. Are we connecting with more than just the people around us or the people we know in our parish? You know, how many other people who are perhaps in a completely different age demographic to you, like completely different age demographic to you, are you actually connecting with in your parish? How many people in your parish could call on you if they were in trouble? Seriously, because that's what a community looks like. We had a situation in my local community. In my, we live in a cul-de-sac at home. And one of our neighbours, uh, about four and a half, five weeks ago, took his own life. And it's a very sad situation. And I was one of the first on the scene to find his wife in absolute tears because I work from home. And then a couple of days later, we organised a, uh, a local, uh, on our street, we organised a working bee to clean up that property as a way of helping our neighbour who has just lost her husband in these terrible, tragic situ- uh, circumstances. Now, I was thinking to myself as we were doing that, how often do we actually do working bees now, though? We used to do these all the time when I was a kid. This was the norm. The local community would step up and do this for people. But... Like This is the first time in a long time I've actually done one of these. One of the things I've done with the, the, the guys in my men's group in my parish is I've made a commitment to them where I've said, if you guys, no matter what time of the day or night it is, if you've, you find yourself in a situation where you need help, it might be mundane. Recently I went and helped a guy cut wood. You know, that was it. You needed some help. Uh, if it's serious, you've just... You know, you've actually got really aggressive with your wife and, and you've just crossed boundaries you shouldn't have crossed if you are struggling with your family life, if you've got whatever the issue is, my door is always open. Because that's what a community is like. And that's the, the pledge I've made to the guys in my men's group in my parish. Because that's the way it should be. Right? Community requires us to give of ourselves. Are we living the kind of culture? Or is it just a buzzword? We need to form intentional community with people. What that means is you need to do real things in the real world. Like real things in the real world. Like this is a real thing in the real world tonight. <laughs> And that's a good thing, right? But you need to do lots more of this. One of my hobbies and one of the things I do in the real world, my younger brother, another mate of mine from the parish, there's actually a couple of guys, and we often go deer hunting. So we go shooting, got the side of a mountain. A couple of weeks ago, we were on the side of a mountain, spent the night there, got up the next day. Beautiful, just trekking across this ridge line in the snow, looking for deers to shoot and give back to God. Uh, you know, like it was just a beautiful sort of spiritual experience. But the, the point is that it was a real thing in the real world. And a couple of whiskies and a few lies and, and just, you know, the stuff that you do in those situations that build meaningful connection. You're actually creating a, a meaningful engagement with others. You, you are creating a story and, and, and experiences that are just part of who you are and part of, uh, of who they are. But we need to deliberately do real things in the real world with people. We, act, we need to actively pursue self-giving. Community is always proactive. It's always proactive. It doesn't just happen. 
oh, it'll just happen if we all sort of get together and somehow it'll happen. Or maybe, uh, maybe Dory will make it happen. Let's just leave it to her. You know, like she'll figure out a way to make it. No, it's proactive. You've actually got to invest yourself in it. You've got to make an active decision to go out of your way. And that can be really difficult. Trust me, I know it can be really difficult. I, I caught an Uber the other night. I arrived in Sydney late. I had to get an Uber from the airport and I was tired and I get into this Uber and it's this Nepalese Uber driver and so he's from Nepal and man what a great conversation I was feeling tired probably the last thing I felt like doing was engaging meaningfully with another person I just sort of wanted to go to sleep right and that's what life is often like for us but I did I spent time engaging with him I talked about my faith it was a great moment of evangelization and we began to talk about fatherhood. And he'd been married for a few years. And he began to ask me, you know, do you think I should have kids? I'm scared. What was it like? And we had this great conversation about it. That's what happens when you form meaningful community with people. You can actually do things for them that are transformative and life-giving. And both of us really benefited from that. But you have to be proactive about it. It doesn't just happen. You can't just get into an Uber and find community. There has to be a willingness to give of yourself. And if we're going to form meaningful Catholic communities, Christ has to be at the centre, just like Christ has to be at the centre of my marriage with my wife. And, and one of, this is one of the reasons why when my wife and I got married, on the day we got married, when we said our vows, we both held a, a crucifix together between our hands as we said our vows because we wanted to make a very public symbol that we were getting on the cross with and for each other on our wedding day. And that is now our, our, our family crucifix, and it hangs on the wall in our bedroom. And that's our reminder. And so when I look at my wife, I need to see Christ. And when I look at my wife and she's angry at me, and I'm angry at her, we both need to see Christ. That's who we need to see. When you look around your parish and you're frustrated as all heck, you need to see Christ. Christ needs to be at the centre. We need strict self-regulation of social media. No one else is going to do this for you, ladies and gentlemen. You need to do it yourself. And I say this as someone who is guilty in this area myself. This device is great. It's handy. It's got more computing power than the first NASA mission that went to the moon, truly. But it's also a very dangerous device when it comes to community. It's very, not just disruptive, but destructive to community if we're not careful. I don't. I, I deliberately make as much of an effort as possible to either not take it or to keep it in my pocket when I'm meeting with and engaging with people. Don't even have it out. What do you need it out for? Oh, because someone better might contact me. Now that's not how communities are formed, right? This thing used to go with me to the dinner table. The dinner table. My wife and kids, and here's my mistress. She's come to join us, you know. And, and this thing would sit on the corner of the table, waiting for something, so I could engage with that instead. And I realised this is absurd. What am I doing here? What am I doing here? This thing here has become kryptonite to genuine, authentic, self-giving love and community. So here's the question you need to ask yourself about your social media use. Is it the icing on the cake or is it the whole cake? Here's the answer. It should be the icing, not the whole cake. The whole cake should be lived in the real world with real people. Flesh and blood, meaningful connection, conversations, where you listen to people and hear their stories and empathise with them and laugh with them, and suffer with them. Can't do that over a phone, I'm afraid. You just can't. It might help to facilitate sort of the initial process of that, the initial stages, but the fullness of that is found in the real world with real people. Okay? And here's a big thing that I would highly recommend. Make Sunday a day of rest. 
not busy or distracted, but actually open up your Sunday and make it a day of rest. You know what I found by making a day of rest? I found that community has actually flourished on that day now in a much much more meaningful way. So sometimes that community involves maybe going out shooting rabbits with my son. Maybe that community sometimes involves sitting down with my kids or my wife and playing a board game. Some days it involves just hanging out with other families in the parish and connecting with people. You see, if all of a sudden Mass is not just something I fit into my Sunday, oh, quick, I better jam that into my schedule, and then hurry up, kids, let's get in the car and get out of here because we've got to go and do our next thing. If Sunday is free, then all of a sudden the space around my parish, Mass attendance is free now to commune with other people. I'm not rushing off to the next big thing. Much, much better to clear that space. I, I really encourage you to do this. And here's the thing. If you want to do Catholic community well, you, your home, and the culture of your personal life, your work life, your personal culture has to reek of Catholicism. It has to reek of Catholicism. People need to see there's something about you, even if they can't quite put their finger on what it is. I remember when I was in year 13, final year of high school, and I had an interesting relationship before I was asked to leave high school, um, with um, the other students in, in my year level. I would walk into the common room in the morning and, and, uh, and they would say, Good morning, Father. <laughs> this is at a state high school, not a Catholic one. And I would say, Good morning, unbelievers. And, and this was sort of how we would start our day each day. It was great. Nothing, you, you can, I'll tell you what, it's great fertile ground for evangelization when you're just not worried about image or reputation anymore. And I remember one day I arrived at school a little bit late and uh, I would like to say that was a rare occurrence, but unfortunately it wasn't, uh, thus the being asked to leave. Um, and um, I remember arriving at school one day, and there was uh, a young girl there, Jane, and a friend of mine, and she was in absolute tears. And I said, Jane, you're right, we're going to have a conversation, what's going on? And then she said to me something interesting, she said, Brian, what's up with you? I said, what do you mean, what's up with me? I'm not the one crying. <laughs> what do you mean, what's up with me? And she said... Even when bad things happen or really difficult things happen to you, you, know, you still experience them and you still experience that suffering, but you never really seem to, to uh, lose hope. You just, you know, it never seems meaningless for you. What, why? So, well, I'm glad you asked, Jane. <laughs> Let me tell you about my Lord and Saviour, Jesus. So, but what it did was it actually opened a conversation that was meaningful because she'd seen something in my life. And I was far from perfect. I got asked to leave high school, right? I'm far from a perfect role model. So if I can do this, any of you can do this, right? Let me ask you a question. That, and I think this is something that's worth considering. And I often ask myself this now on a regular basis. If Christianity was outlawed tomorrow, if, if Catholicism was outlawed tomorrow and they started arresting people for, for the crime of Catholicism and you were arrested and charged with Catholicism, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you of that crime? Or would people look at you and go, oh, no, no, he's not a Catholic. Boy, that's crazy. No way she's a Catholic. You want to see on Friday and Saturday night what's going on there. <laughs> no, 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 he's not a Catholic. You want to see what he's watching on Monday night. No, no, no. Or would they say, oh, I knew it. Funny little wooden beads between their fingers in the workroom at you know, lunchtime, something strange going on there, <laughs> muttering the same thing over and over again. Must be Catholic, you know. <laughs> right? Is there enough evidence in your life to convict you of Catholicism? Are you really living a Catholic culture? Are you really living a Catholic culture? One of the things I'm doing at the moment is um, when I'm not doing these speaking engagements is I'm working full-time with a human rights lawyer in New Zealand to 
to, we're working on a strategy to try and de- defeat a euthanasia bill that's currently before our parliament. And that comes to an end, the funding for that role comes to an end next March. And so I've been thinking and praying about what I'm going to do next. And I think one of the focuses for me going forward is going to be trying to create practical resources that help families to really develop and live out a, a full and authentic Catholic culture in their own life. It's not rocket science, but it's so very, very important that we live that out in our lives. You know, starting our day right with a basic, simple prayer, offering our day back to God, ending it with an examination of conscience, regularly going to the sacrament of confession, Eucharistic adoration, the Mass. Does our life reek of Catholicism? And here's the thing, if your life reeks of Catholicism, it has to be outward-focused. It has to be self-giving and it has to be evangelistic. You have already been given your mission and you were given it at baptism. And your mission is to go into the world and take the gospel into the world. It is not what we currently have, which is what I call the field of dreams approach to evangelization. Has anybody seen the Field of Dreams movie? So the Field of Dreams, it's an older movie, okay? Look it up, Google it. Okay, Field of Dreams is about a farmer who has a big cornfield and he has this vision. And he, the vision keeps telling him, if you build it, this baseball diamond in your cornfield, they will come. If you build it, they will come. Now, that's unfortunately the mantra we've adopted for a lot of Catholic evangelization today. If we build it, they will come. No, 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 no. So we put on this great program in our parish, stick a sign out the front, no one turned up. We built it, they didn't come. Why not? Because evangelism is about going out into the community. It's outward focused. So what are you doing to evangelize? And don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of first reactions. You're going to, you have to expect those, especially in light of what's going on in the church right now. And I don't think I need to go into great detail, especially what's happened today in the news, right? It's not easy to get out there and say, hey, I'm a Catholic. But what a great conversation starter, you know? Get the controversy out of the way out front and then talk about the real meaningful stuff. What an opportunity. So yes, to finish with, that does mean that we are like hobbits. So, those who are wondering, uh, we really are like hobbits. And I mean, what I mean by this is that if you know the story of Lord of the Rings, oh, Catholics, of course you do. If you know the story of Lord of the Rings, then you'll know that the hobbits are given the most important task in that entire story. They are told to take the ring of power, this great source of all evil, into the heart of Mordor, take it up to the top of Mount Doom and throw it in the fires and destroy it. Yet they are the most ill-equipped for that task. They don't have the elegant prowess, the angelic prowess of the elves. They don't have the military prowess of the riders of Rohan or the soldiers of men. They don't have the powers and the supernatural prowess of the wizards. They are short, they eat a lot, and they have hairy feet. Now, I don't know about you, but I identify with them as people for that reason, right? And they are given the most important task in all of Middle-earth. They, they are the most ill-equipped for that task. That's you and I. We are the most ill-equipped for this task we've been given to build community. We are. We're self-centered. We're selfish. We'd much rather be doing our own thing. It's, it's hard. Evangelization, gee, that's even harder. We are like those little hobbits. But here's the thing that, that those hobbits do have is they have humility. And humility is absolutely essential if we're going to build authentic community. That's all I really want to say apart from get out there and actually start living proactively in intentional communities. Thanks, guys. You're awesome. That was Brendan Malone with Alone Together, 
Why the Loss of Community is Breaking the West. To find out more about Brendan, visit Left Foot Media on YouTube. And for more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.